This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Greetings, salutations, and welcome to this, the SA Radio Award winning show you and I know as the COVID Report, the show where I give you comprehensive coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. I am your host, Ukamili Kwapovana, here to give you the show that gives you all of the facts, all of the stats, all of the figures, and none of the misinformation as it pertains to all things COVID-19. This being the very first edition of the COVID Report, post the most recent address from our President Cyril Ramaphosa, in which he announced that the country would be moved to adjusted lockdown alert level one, which followed a very brief three-week period under which we were placed under adjusted alert level two. As we always do, invite Mr. Jamie Mighty onto the show to help us unpack that address and everything that um, that address represents as far as the future of our continued fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. The president spoke at length about the intense need for more citizens to visit their nearest vaccination site to get the COVID-19 vaccine in order to boost the numbers of uh, vaccinated citizens to well above um, to much closer to where we need them to be in order for these uh, restrictions to no longer be a part of our lives. So to give you a quick recap of that address, this is what our Commander-in-Chief President Sir Ramaphosa had to say. Cap. Cabinet has decided to move South Africa from adjusted level two to adjusted alert level one. The following measures will then apply as part of alert level one. The hours of the curfew will change from 12 midnight to 4 a.m. Non-essential establishments like restaurants and bars and fitness centers will need to close by 11 p.m. now to allow their employees and patrons to travel home before the start of the curfew. The maximum number of people permitted for attending meetings indoors will increase from 250 to 750. And the maximum number of people permitted to attend meetings outdoors will increase from 500 to 2,000. Where the venue is too small to accommodate these numbers with appropriate social distancing, then no more than 50% of the capacity of the venue may be utilized. This includes religious services, political events, social gatherings, as well as restaurants, bars, taverns, and similar places. The maximum number of people permitted at a funeral will increase from 50 to 100. As before, night vigils, after funeral gatherings, and after tears gatherings are not allowed because they've been proven to be super spreader events. The sale of alcohol for both off-site and on-site consumption will be permitted will be permitted according to the normal license provisions of such establishments. However, no alcohol may be sold after 11 p.m. 
Well, you heard it yourself. The most recent address from our Commander-in-Chief, President Cyril Ramaphosa, announcing the move of South Africa to adjusted alert level one in our lockdown, in our continued efforts to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us for reaction, as he always does, um, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the show independent, uh, independent political analyst and commentator, Mr. Jamie Mighty. And he joins us on the line right now. Jamie, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome as ever to the COVID report, sir. Thank you for having me and good evening to all the listeners. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Can you talk us through mm. your immediate reaction to not just the contents of the speech that President Sura Maposa gave us, but also something that I've also noted, the very, very interesting and intriguing time gap between that address and the address three weeks prior at which we were placed under adjusted alert level two lockdown. Is there anything to be considered, anything to be overthought, perhaps, as far as the timing between these two separate addresses? Well, I'll tell you honestly, my first impression was that um, the political dynamics um, of the moment overtook the scientific needs of the community. Because even though there is a slightly lower um, daily caseload, my observation of the vaccination rate. And if you look at the fully vaccinated population right now, we are sitting on 15% of fully vaccinated people, 21% of the population having at least one dose. That is a very low number to go to such an open level, such as level one. And considering that they had been projections that there would be another surge, you know, a fourth wave, it seemed to me that the scientific concerns um, had fallen secondary to the political necessities of the time. And the political necessities of the time, obviously, are that now, as we are having this conversation, we are 27 days away from the one November election date. And obviously, political parties have an interest to be able to campaign in communities, to be able to do door-to-door visits, because uh, local government elections are actually a very critical um part of governance and a lot of political party professionals um, work in local government. So when you consider that, and then you also consider the additional dynamics just around the way people have been behaving in society, we're not necessarily pushing towards level one. And just the week before, a lot of people had been complaining that other political parties, such as the EFF, had held super spreader events. So it seemed that um, the scientific view then um, took a, a secondary role to the political necessities of the time. So then with that in mind then, Jamie, does this then cast a light of, of doubt and skepticism towards the decision to move South Africa to lockdown level one? Further implying that one of the chief reasons that uh, we moved to lockdown level one was so that no one, no other political party had a space to complain about their inability to campaign to the masses ahead of that pivotal November 1st election date that you mentioned. And does this potentially place us in more danger of being more drastically affected by um, the looming threat of the fourth wave? I do think that we are likely to face a fourth wave at some point shortly after the elections are over because of ramped up activities. One, the political activities, but two, the social activities. Because what has happened, and I'm sure you've observed this as well, is that once levels are 
drastically reduced, what happens is that there is a burst of um, social activity, almost as if, you know, school kids who've been let out of school to, you know, at, 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 at the end, at closure of school day. And there's that excitement and there's that energy. And we're seeing that um, young people are going to social events and they are the lowest level of vaccinated community. So I think, so we, we, we do face, I think, reasonable conclusion that there is going to be a surge shortly after this 27 days that are remaining of hyper-social activity, drinking, as well as political activity and the combination thereof. And I think one of the, the contradictions that points to a political leaning towards some of the reasoning is that the number of people allowed for funerals did not change. And I don't know if you noticed that as well, because they were saying you can have indoor gatherings of 750 people, 2,000 people may attend um, outdoor gatherings. However, only 100 people may attend funerals. So then the question then becomes, what is unique to a gathering called funeral? that is different to these indoor gatherings in terms of, you know, they being all of the critical factors for COVID-19 spread. Either you are concerned about COVID-19 spread across the board and want to mitigate that uh, person-to-person contamination and contagion risk, or you are not concerned. And it's irrelevant whether the event is a church setting, political setting, or a funeral. The fact that there was a discrepancy in that kind of showed that maybe there was an enthusiasm to make sure that all of the political events were fairly accommodated for. Because if you are saying that you want 2,000 people for an outdoor gathering, that is most political gatherings, except for the large, large rallies. Indeed, you bring up a very interesting point in terms of this apparent discrepancy about the number of permitted people to attend a funeral gathering not necessarily changing all of that much compared to the wholesale changes that have been made to the rules pertaining to how many people can gather indoors and how many people can gather outdoors. Can you talk us through your observation of the challenge that government has always been faced with when it comes to gazetting these regulations, putting these regulations in place in a way that best serves everyone in South African society, not just certain pockets of the South African society. And what is the risk that they run in terms of the very real potential to upset a certain sector of society in the interest of of pacifying and satisfying another sector of society? And how are those apparent inequalities further addressed and what um what what is the challenge ahead for government every time they get around to the this time of the process of this fight against the covid-19 pandemic when they're when they're mulling over the change of um of lockdown regulations how do they go about best doing this to keep all of the society on side not just certain pockets of society yeah, that's a great question. And I think to do the, the balancing act or the way up, it's critical to point out where the hard balancing act areas are before we look at, you know, the sentimental and the political concerns, which is what you were talking about towards the end. So at the, in the first instance, from a public health perspective, you want to minimize the spread of the virus and you want to um, minimize the loss of lives and you want to make sure that your public health care facilities have capacity to handle all of the people who are being admitted with serious uh, symptoms of COVID-19 and to avert, obviously, their death. So those are the public health care concerns. Secondary to the public health care concerns, and I say secondary because 
uh, in our constitutional framework and in our social and moral understanding, life supersedes economic concerns. But there is a nexus between, you know, economics and social social political factors. And the second concern then is how do you take care of the livelihoods of people when you have limited budget? Because you cannot do what America and Canada and other countries have done, which is to give people, you know, stimulus money in a way that is meaningful that you can then say to them, stay at home. Staying at home is important, obviously, for the public health care concern. But when you then make the decision that you can't afford to give people money to stay at home, therefore they must participate in economic activity. Now there are two competing interests there, the pure public health interest and the socioeconomic interest of making sure that people have enough means to buy food, maintain a roof over their head, and to take care of their financial obligations. So these have been the competing tensions. But then there's a third social factor, which comes to substances such as alcohol, which contribute to the public health care concern. So government has been saying, look, initially they said cigarettes and alcohol are making things difficult for us. Cigarettes have now fallen away, but alcohol has remained something that government has sought to curtail the consumption of in, in, the, in, in the analysis that, you know, when you have um, social drinking, you then have people showing up um, in hospitals requiring attention. And that's something that they've been trying to, um, to curtail. So those are the competing concerns um, in terms of the, the life, the socioeconomic and the pure social. But then there, there are these political concerns where churches will say you have adversely affected our right to practice our faith, where political parties will say we can no longer campaign freely and fairly, where other people will say you are actually limiting our ability to go and visit family and take part in our cultural events. And all of these are competing concerns with different outcomes for the government of the day. And obviously in an election year, one of the outcomes that will begin to matter a little bit more is what is the voter sentiment towards particular interventions. And that's why I think we've seen the balancing act be the way that it has with the kind of sometimes uh, contradictory outcomes that we've just discussed just now. Indeed, I'd like for us to circle back to the political element of this because um, it is an important element to consider um, when you remember that we are still in the run-up to that very important November 1st election date for the local government elections. I just want to spend a few moments to um, focus on the sector of uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa's speech that he dedicated to vaccines. And I'm, I'm... in, in, in doing so, I'm attempting to shine not only this most previous speech that he gave, but the speech before it, when he announced that a mooted vaccine certificate would be rolled out by the Department of Health. And um, this is part of their final push to get over 16 million people vaccinated by the time December rolls around in the country. The reports suggest that this vaccination certificate has gone live effective today. And um, there is a mechanism that South Africans can use to uh, register for this certificate online Have should they qualify as fully vaccinated South African citizens. In your opinion, Jamie, 
how will this serve to either to, to, to either quell the vaccine hesitancy or further enhance it? Um, this degree of vaccine hesitancy that still exists in this country that can be explained by looking at the re- the relatively low number of uh, vaccinated citizens uh, in South Africa that is nowhere near where government may have planned for it to be in order to consider these restrictions no longer being a part of our lives. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the question is an important question and we must just start off the conversation by delineating vaccine hesitancy to vaccine skepticism. You know, the anti-vaxxers are not going to um, take a vaccine for whatever reason. They are opposed to all and any vaccines and this is just another one of them. And then you have people who are at various stages of the persuasion journey and saying, look, I may not be ready yet. I've got some more questions or, you know, this has all come so fast or I'm afraid. And all of these would fall into the hesitant group, meaning that they are persuadable. They are not fully opposed on principle. So I think that that's number one. We need to be able to make a clear delineation between the two. And sometimes the anti-vaxxers use the same language as vaccine-hesitant people to avoid being chastised for being anti-vaxxers, where society has taken a harsher position against them. So I I think that um, that's an important distinction that needs to just be kept in mind. Having said that, it's it's clear that the vaccination pace has not moved as fast as it should. And now the government is trying to accelerate this. I, I, I don't anticipate that we will see a lot of people who are unvaccinated now rushing to vaccinate because of the introduction of this electronic um, you know, certificate now that, that, that you've just discussed. And obviously those who are vaccinated and they're not insignificant, it's a large number of people with uh, double doses, um, they will start their journey and uh, electronically um, register, especially those who are interested in international travel. This, this particular policy push though is one that is going to be difficult for two reasons. Number one, that the president initially said no one would be forced to take a vaccine. And now, obviously, there is um, conversation about the introduction of these vaccine certificates. And there will be people who will hold on to the first message and not necessarily allow um, for that change of mind or change in thinking as knowledge has increased. So there's going to be a tension there to be saying to, where people will say, but this guy said this, now he has changed his position and they will reject the new position on the basis of that a promise was made and they want that promise to be kept the way it is. The, the, the second difficulty that is going to come is that if you try to mandate things early, you can risk backlash simply because of people feeling that the force was not the necessary measure. And this is what we've seen, I think, in um, France. We've seen it also in some protests in Germany, not as many as in France. We've seen some protests as well in America and even locally in the Western Cape in particular. There are already people who are expressing opposition to uh, vaccines being mandated. So what this what this could mean is that if there is an aggressive push to mandate um, and to force people to um, get these electronic certificates, then you could actually see a lack of adoption coming from a resistance to the overpush. We must remember that this is not France, this is not Germany, and our dynamics on the ground are quite different. And you may be able to persuade some people, you know, if they want to go watch Champions League soccer to get a vaccine, but 
even though there's a sizable soccer community, there's also a sizable amount of people who just watch it on TV who will not be incentivized by those kind of things. So we have to be very thoughtful around what will make a policy such as this successful. If your aim is to make sure you have the highest number of people who are vaccinated, you do have to approach um, your persuasion journey uh, in the most strategic way. You don't want to get into a situation where you end up with an ETOL case study. And if you recall, um, ETOLs were not fully um, you know, uh, persuaded to the public in that they, they weren't presented in a way where there was a public consensus around their necessity. And then organizations started forming, resisting uh, the adoption of ETOLs. And what eventually happened is that there was a critical mass of people who opted out of the system and then you could have no law enforcement. The challenge with all law enforcement is that you need a critical mass of civilians to self-monitor, to self-police, and to buy into whatever your regulation is. Once you have a critical mass of people opting out, it becomes difficult to enforce anything because you literally have to arrest the whole country, and it's not possible to do that mm. um, from you know pragmatic uh, reasons of prison size, limited amount of police, uh, limited um, uh, space in courts, but also it's, it would be self-defeating to arrest people for not vaccinating, put them in a crowded prison, and then they give each other COVID. So, I mean, the long and short of it is that um, while it is a very, very good and noble thing to try to increase the number of people who are vaccinated within the population, government must consider less adverse ways of getting to these numbers before trying to implement a force strategy because of the risks that I've outlined around that particular approach. Very insightful stuff. Another matter I'd like to get your insight on, Jamie, is the matter concerning the various sanctions that um, other countries have put in place to regulate um, the the numbers of people that travel into their countries pertaining to the various vaccination systems as they differ from country to country with the rules. Um, I'm thinking of the UK, for example, um, putting the rule into effect that should you f- should you wish to enter the United Kingdom, you have to um, undergo a separate vaccination process. You have to undergo a separate um, quarantine uh, process. And um, when that rule was uh, late, was put in place against South Africans wishing to travel into the United Kingdom, a lot of conjecture was made about that. And further reports um, surfaced of India putting similar um, sanctions in place against UK citizens looking to travel into the country of India. When it comes to the, the the part we have to play as South Africa in this continued international exchange of sanctions. A lot has also been made about why we as South Africa was uh, hesitant to put those very same sanctions in place against countries like the UK who um, went ahead and put those sanctions in place against us as South African citizens. Can you talk me through your observation of government's difficulty to seemingly match the energy that they're given by these other countries and why it's not nearly as simple as them saying, oh, okay, so they want to um, put harsh uh, travel sanctions against us. We're going to do the same against them and their citizens looking to travel to our country. 
Yeah, so the issue of red listing, which is what the UK has has termed it, countries where they have these stringent requirements for visitors um, who are coming from those countries, has been a controversial one for the reasons that you've identified. The United Kingdom administration has now said that they are going to take South Africa off the list. And what had happened is that they were using a very basically racist uh, approach to looking at African countries. They were saying, well, your vaccines are likely to be not real. Your certification is likely to not be real. Sorry, and they were called out for that by several African states, particularly South Africa, which has a lot of travel still between London and, and Cape Town and Johannesburg, for instance. So um, as a result of that, there was a meeting of scientists, there was diplomatic pressure, and that has been, uh, I think, uh, is now in the process of being reversed. The issues that come up from th- this behavior, not only from um, the UK, but other countries which have taken a more uh, drastic approach towards African countries, is one, uh, it does demonstrate this um, superiority complex that these countries still possess. Number two, it does hurt the narrative that our vaccines are good enough. Because if they're saying, well, if you're from South Africa, you have to start from scratch, you're going to presume you're not vaccinated. That does give credence to those who are skeptical and hesitant to say, wait a minute, you're not even giving me the good stuff. You're just giving me whatever. And now I can't even go outside the country without being told to start over. So what's the point of mandating me, forcing me, making me take the certificate if the product that you're giving me is not even uh, internationally recognizable. So I think that that was the issue. In terms of why it's difficult sometimes for the Department of International Relations to just say, you know what, tit for tat, let's go, is simply because even though South Africa is a big player on the African continent, it's still relatively a small player on the global stage. You know, you cannot make certain threats to America, UK, Germany, because they they are large economies and uh, our governments and populations take a lot of... um, uh, welfare and support aid from them and still need a lot of money to be cleared um, by those particular supporting countries to get funding for COVID-19 rebuilding. So the diplomatic uh, uh, constraints are so high that it's very difficult to do a tit-for-tat with some politicians were suggesting when they were like, ah, well, they red list you, just red list them back, let's go. Um, it, those are not the kind of fights that, uh, you know, a developing country can take on without having adverse consequences. And and so I think it is positive that uh, the UK has walked back their original red listing position. But I do think that there are many questions that will remain for Africans to think about because we have, um, you know, good and high quality scientists in, in Africa. We also have a lot of people who come from our institutions across Africa and are poached by the UK, America, Germany, China, uh, and utilized in their labs and given full credentials. So why is it that those same Africans, when they're in Africa, are treated as third grade scientists or charlatan scientists when they are good enough to operate in, in, in Harvard hospitals and, and all of that. So I, I think that's a consideration that will remain. And um, there are many things we still need to think around our international relations, relations, relationships with countries, because clearly there is no parity and African states are still being treated as inferior. 
Very insightful stuff, Jamie. Thank you so much for that. Now, circling back to the very strong presence of the political element behind the latest moves that have been made by our government as far as our continued fight against the COVID-19 pandemic that we covered earlier in the lead-up to the local government elections, which, as we uh, stated earlier, are 20-something days away. 27, 25. I I lose track of uh, these things. And I sit here, Jamie, with an overwhelming sense that I that, that I, I seemingly can't control. I can't help but feel like I'm a negative Nancy in the sense that every time these addresses are made by the president and every time these new regulations are put forward, I can't help but poke holes in them and try to try to find the ulterior motive behind why certain concessions have been made, why certain regulations have been eased, why certain regulations have been put have been um, gazetted to remain in place. In terms of the the run-up to the local government elections, and you mentioned the fact that for certain parties, the important thing is the ability to be able to campaign to their masses to try and get as many votes as they possibly can on that important election day. Can you talk me through the the, the danger that that this represents in terms of alienating the the the, the, the national sentiment from uh for, from getting the vote to go the way they desire it to go when all of these parties are seemingly jockeying for position to get the vote of the sectors of society that have been disenfranchised by the ways in which the current administration has conducted their affairs and this is across um, COVID both pre and during COVID in terms of the ways in which they have conducted their affairs um, in the various provinces that they govern. Do, do these do these latest moves represent a potential to alienate the um, the masses that they're campaigning to? And what are the real dangers of these political parties losing favor with the masses that they are trying to campaign to by making the moves that have been made and this very real sense of skepticism and a need to identify ulterior motives behind the moves that they've been making? Yeah, well, you know, there's always going to be this tension between the politics and the science of COVID-19 because, unfortunately, this this is happening in a contemporary period where everyone is digitally connected and everyone has, a, you know, a microphone now and debates can ensue. And, unfortunately, this got dragged into the American political machinery and uh, as it traveled around the world, the issue itself also took more political uh, tones. So, um, you know, this will this will exist and these are dynamics that will matter. And when you have electoral politics, the complications become more significant. And I think it's important to point out that at least now, the vaccinations are happening. Um, the issue seems to be the hesitancy, particularly amongst men uh, who are not necessarily going in the numbers that they need to for us to really make the dent that... Uh, is aimed for. You know, other other African countries are, are still far behind, others are far ahead. So it's a mixed bag of performance, but at least there are some bright spots in terms of the progress. When it now comes to whether or not government will be affected by the, the decisions that they've made around these particular rollouts um, of COVID-19 events, 
it's very likely that some people will be fatigued from all of the the up and down uh, with the rules, the regulations, the economic uh, implications, and as a result, uh, adversely vote against, um, you know, the incumbent administration, which in this case would be the ANC. So um, it's it's very likely that we're going to see some of this actually take a toll on the party in terms of electoral outcomes. I don't see how it's avoidable at this particular moment. And of course, um, the way that the decisions have made, the way that they've been debated from cigarettes, alcohol levels, artists saying that they want to perform, and all of these different dynamics, people protesting on beaches, people being arrested in their in their in their yards, all of these things are still within the, the, the conversational discourse as much as they also considerations around COVID-19 corruption and and a fraud specifically related to the pandemic. There's a, a multiplicity of issues that are going to be at play as we go to this one November um, election date. And th- there's definitely going to be um, a, a political you know, um, cost attached to everything that has happened. So um, as much as you know, there are positive steps that are being taken, there's also a lot of noise, frustration, anger, and resentment that is currently existing because of everything that has happened in the last two years, um, close to two years now in total. So this is a reality. And I think um, as much as there is nuance, there's also, I think, a fair assessment that can be made. That this could be um, you know, detrimental to the prospects of the ANC at the ballot. And to round off our discussion with one more matter, I'd like to get your um, insight on. And I love the fact that you capped off um, your on, your previous answer the way you did because it serves as a nice lead into my final question to you at this time, Mr. Mighty. The electoral outcomes, the desired outcomes and projected outcomes in terms of uh, the, 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 the parties looking to hold on and retain power and the parties looking to usurp that power from those who currently possess it. I'm thinking about the various pockets of society that I have personally observed who all seem to be united in one thought that this party, and I'm not going to refer to these parties, but I'm going to try not to refer to these parties by name, but this party is not going to get our mm. vote because um, this party has demonstrated time and time again that our vote for them does not uh, materialize the way we need it to. But we, in, do, in deciding that this party is not going to get um, our vote, we can't decide between which of the remaining parties will get our vote for reasons that vary from pillar to post. I'm thinking about the various upstart political organizations that are entering this race for the very first time and also looking to campaign for votes. What would you say are the most realistic expectations for these parties um, to have and to consider? Should, oh, should they be bold enough to, 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 to have the goal of completely usurping um, the power from the majority or just causing enough damage to dent and lower the amount of influence that these bigger parties have in terms of the final electoral outcomes? Yeah, I think that's an important question. And um, what's likely to happen is that there won't be a total change in the incumbency. We're likely to see the Western Cape still being governed by the Democratic Alliance. We're likely to see uh, in Gauteng, um, you know, some mix of coalitions which are still favorable towards the African National Congress. Uh, But overall, we're likely to see a, a, a fall in the voter share 
for the two large parties, namely the ANC and the Democratic Alliance, and um, small to medium increase in the support base of the EFF. In the last election, the EFF was at about 1.8 million voters. They are likely to cross the 2 million mark, maybe uh, even reach uh, you know, 2.2, um, but uh, not likely to co- go much further than that. So this election really is the first half. As you know, we are going towards 2024. And there, I think um, we may see some more uh, seismic shifts because narratives will begin to form. Uh, those narratives are currently forming, but they are not yet fully verified by data. Those narratives being that the ANC is in de- Decline, as also the Democratic Alliance is in decline and has no pathway even to 25%. If that continues and the DA loses voter share again, then people will stop looking to it as a potential future governing opposition, so to speak, um, or his governing party coming from opposition, uh, and they'll begin to look at alternatives. So th- those dynamics are going to exist. I don't think we're going to see large shifts. We may see uh, some more localized large shifts where maybe, for instance, the Patriotic Alliance wins a lot of wards in colored townships uh, in, 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 in Joburg and Cape Town. And um, this could adversely affect, obviously, the Democratic Alliance. We're not likely to see a lot more uh, of that. We'll see a lot of the small to medium-sized parties, I think, have a, a slight bump in their performance. Uh, but I, I don't think we're going to see like seismic shifts. But um, it's going to be very interesting to observe how much the hit was to the African National Congress because this will prove the vibrancy of their brand in terms of the resilience in times of, um, you know, a very tough political environment because, um, you know, job loss has gone up as we've seen in the first two quarters. Unemployment is a 34.4 overall using the, you know, the, the, the simple definition of the expanded one, but youth unemployment using the expanded definition is at 75% uh, for people between the ages of 15 and 24, and it's at 52% for people between the ages of 25 and 34, which is still relatively high, meaning one out of two people in that age group are definitely unemployed. So um, when you look at those factors, look at the, the massive factional divisions, the reporting on corruption, the July unrest, the looming uh, Zuma debacles are still in the arms deal trial and several other uh, issues, you know, political killings, which have resurfaced. We just saw some uh, political leaders being killed in different municipalities affiliated to the African National Congress. So these are very difficult times um, for an incumbent party to have an election. So let's say they lose 3% of their, uh, um, you know, voter share. That could show that the brand is more vibrant than we anticipated. But if they lose 5 to 6%, that could show that the brand is really in trouble. And um, this is then going to really start giving an indication to what the dynamics are for 2024. Spirited post-family meeting discussion, as is always the case here on the COVID report. These are the, the discussions I look forward to more than anything. Our guest, Mr. Jamie Mighty, independent political commentator, joining us on the COVID report to unpack the latest address from President Cyril Ramaphosa announcing the move of South Africa to adjusted alert lockdown level one ahead of those local government elections coming up on the 1st of November. And everything that is um, implied and represented by the timing of these moves. Jamie, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us and uh, looking forward to having you again in the future. Thank you for having me.
This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vets. By Voice of Vets. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or stream via www.vafm.co.za.